Salofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. We have come a long way as a small island nation. Solomon Island celebrates Independence Day. Also, we both realize that two nations have been wasting on the side for too long. Indonesia's president pays a visit to Papua New Guinea. And later, a new woman-led initiative looks at peace-building in the Pacific. Solomon Islands celebrated its 45th anniversary of independence on Friday. A parade was held through the streets of Honiara, and thousands flocked to the National Law Center Football Stadium for an official ceremony. The theme for this year's celebrations was rising above and overcoming our challenges as one people. Speaking during the ceremony, Prime Minister Manasi Sogavari called for unity and solidarity. Ladies and gentlemen, we have come a long way. As a small island nation, we are still finding our place in this global economy. Mr. Sogavari also alluded to the polarizing effect of increased geopolitical competition in the Pacific and reiterated his government's neutral stance in the region. The world today is not the same as the one we were in five years ago. The global environment is undergoing dynamic changes which sees bigger countries jostling for influence in the world and our region. We have felt these changes and are trying to understand it and respond in such a way that does not make us choose sides. We are friends to all and enemy to none. We want to remain neutral because it is not in the interest of our people and country to take sides and align ourselves with interests that are not our interests. For a more academic reflection on Solomon Island's independence and how it pertains to the Solomon's diaspora, RNZ Pacific editor Koroi Hawkins, a Solomon Islander himself, spoke with Victoria University Solomon Islands academic Kabini Sanga. It's 45 years in in human terms, human experience is not a long time, but in terms of um, from a generational sense uh, for people and as leaders, um, that's about three generations, uh, 45, 45 years, maybe almost three, two and a half generations, maybe. Uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a good enough time uh, for any people like a nation state to have a sense for what it is trying to become or how, how it is trying to look after itself as a community. So in that sense, I think, I think um, in our lifetime, at least, we are seeing our efforts as a nation state uh, to be what we, we are thinking, we are aspiring to be. Um, in one sense, there, there are some good things uh, that have been happening, and we could talk about those a little later. Uh, but there are also not so good things that have been happening. Um, fa- famously, uh, one of our founding fathers or early leaders, uh, Solomon Mamloni, said, a nation conceived but not born for describing the problem with a national identity for Solomon Islands. And it's a, a thing that has plagued us um, throughout and even with ethnic crisis, but even coming out of that. What's your view on this concept of national unity for Solomon Islanders? Yeah, unity, whether it is national or uh, familial, 
or village-based uh, is uh, one of the values that any any community lives for. Yeah, without without unity, we are not even a community. Uh, having said that, uh, I actually don't uh, buy into the uh, I suppose the thinking. Uh, that is attributed to uh, one of our leaders, uh, the late Solomon Mamaloni. Uh, fundamentally, I think that's that's a sick mindset um, because you you second guess yourself as a leader by thinking, by believing in something like that, uh, and therefore uh, the default position to. Um, not deal with the challenges of your time um, so that on our deathbed, we can say, oh yeah, I have done all I could and I'm happy. I have lived out my purpose in life as, as a leader or as a community of Solomon Island leaders. That's what I would like to see Solomon Islanders think. And to think like that, you cannot believe in what is is attributed to Solomon Mamaloni. For for the I think one of the even more so than than in country for us for the for the Solomon diaspora living overseas, the independence is a is a very unifying sort of um brings communities together that are otherwise spread across different parts of the world when when they come together to celebrate independence. I, um for the for Solomon Islanders living overseas, I guess how do we contribute or continue to uphold that that national identity, and where does that pride come from? I guess. Right, right. So emotionally, our need as diaspora, as Solomon Islanders who are not in country, uh, one of our biggest needs is emotional connection to Solomon Islands. Yeah, and because of that. Uh, in our minds, we are aspiring for that. We are wanting that all the time. And any any manifestations of showing that or any ways of enhancing that is important. Now, in my mind, uh, again, it's a mindset issue. For me, uh, Solomon Islanders who by association to Solomon Islands, but who are living outside of the Solomons, um, have to believe that fundamentally the family is key in socializing our children to emotionally enhance our embeddedness as Solomon Islanders. We socialize them in the way we talk with them on an everyday basis within family settings. And in my case, if I'm thinking about family, not just as a nuclear family, but as the community of One Talks, as the as the church groups that we are part of, wherever we are, our fundamental primary responsibility as Solomon Islanders, or just even as human beings, is to socialize our children intentionally in everything that we consider good and true and is of value to us, including our languages. That's a family primary responsibility, not one that we blame the government for, not one that we think someone else should be doing on our behalf. 
Indonesia's President Jokowi Widodo visited Port Moresby on Thursday for a one-day state visit where he met with his Papua New Guinean counterpart, James Marape. Relations between the two neighbours have largely been cordial, with both seeing strong economic growth over the last two decades. But the relationship isn't smooth sailing, with the issue of West Papua weighing heavily among many Papua New Guineans. Fina Funua has more. Traditional dancers welcomed the President Jokowi with song and smiles soon after his arrival to Jackson's International Airport in Port Moresby on Wednesday. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape was also present at the airport to greet his counterparts. The outcome of the bilateral discussions are stronger social relations, with Jokowi agreeing to sponsor 2,000 Papua New Guinean students to attend university in Indonesia. He also pledged around 15 million U.S. dollars to upgrade Port Moresby's largest hospital. In a joint press conference, the leaders told media their discussions covered agreements on trade, combating transnational crime, and a review of border arrangements. Prime Minister James Marape praised the meeting. This is a very, very warm, in fact, one of the warmest meetings I've ever had. As head of government on his side, but also as head of state on his side, he related to Papua New Guinea like never before. We've been in partnership since 1975, going 48 years now, uh, but we both realized that two nations have been wasting on the side for too long. Throughout the entire visit, there was no mention of the white elephant in the room, that being West Papua. Just this week in Geneva, Human Rights Council Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, Alice Wairimo N.D. Ritu, described the human rights situation in Indonesia's West Papua province as deeply concerning. Harassment, arbitrary arrests, and detention of Papuans in non-recognition of the rights of indigenous Papuans that has enabled the alleged appropriation of indigenous lands. On July 1st, thousands of West Papuan refugees in Papua New Guinea celebrated their 52nd proclamation of Independence Day. Port Mosby Governor Paul Parkop, a longtime advocate of West Papua's independence movement, said in a video statement this week that he supported Jokowi's visit to Port Mosby. Parkop said it's an opportunity to discuss ways to improve the situation in West Papua. We are open to talk to him. I want to invite him in this uh, regard to that, uh, to think about the future and not be defined by the past. The past, we can't change. The past, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of issues and history that we are not proud of or we can't be proud of. But the future, we can absolutely redefine and make it, make it better. But for many West Papuan refugees in Papua New Guinea, the visit is a blunt reminder of where Papua New Guinea stands in its foreign relations with Indonesia. Mangi Lufa Apo is among thousands of refugees who have grown up in Papua New Guinea after their parents fled West Papua, fearing suppression from Indonesian authorities. Lufa Apo says seeing Pacific Island nations foster ties with Indonesia is heartbreaking. He says Pacific Island nations should be emulating the regional solidarity that European countries recently displayed 
with Ukraine. The Pacific countries are not doing that. They're, they're so silent about some of the countries here are showing the support to Ukraine and, you know, well, we have a genocide going on and it's just at our doorstep and we're not, we're not really organized. Indonesia incorporated West Papua in 1962 after the Netherlands voluntarily withdrew from the territory. A new regional initiative focused on peace-building has been launched. The Pacific Women Mediators Network believes their human rights-based approaches to conflict prevention leads to a more secure and stable Pacific region. It will invest in leadership development for young Pacific women and hold the Pacific Forum leaders to account on gender equality. Joining me to talk about this network is Program Manager Sharon Bagwin-Rolls. Tell for lover Sharon, tell me more about the Pacific Women Mediators Network. The Pacific Women Mediators Network is uh, the result of many, many years of women's contributions, Pacific Island women's contributions to building peace in our region. Um, I really want to start by acknowledging all the women who paved the way, including in the Nuclear Free Independent Pacific Movement, all the different civil society networks, and, and those who continue to to look at the intersectionalities of the issues that um, we need to address if we're committed to a peaceful, sustain, you know, a, a region that is peaceful, one of peace. Then tell me, how do Pacific women contribute to peace building and security? I mean, from a cultural perspective, don't they do that already? Yes, they do. I mean, we do have, um, it is very important to acknowledge the traditional and, and cultural aspects of peace building. But when we see that our region is, our Pacific Island region in particular, has such low levels of women's representation in political decision-making, such high rates of gender-based violence, and the fact that despite commitments, including Pacific leaders' gender equality declaration, you know, commitments to gender equality, we're not seeing a shift in the kind of power. We're not seeing the formal acknowledgement of women's local initiatives, women's definitions of peace and security, um, in national decision-making and even in regional political decisions as well. And when our governments have made a commitment to say that climate change is the single biggest security threat to our region, women who are on the front lines of climate action, on disaster management, on humanitarian response, are still not equals in decision-making, then I think we really have to make that shift from just acknowledging our roles in our communities, in our faith communities, in our homes, to really in those formal spaces. So that's why we've persisted to to continue to remind our governments of the commitments that have been made to gender equality in the context of peace and security, but also now while we're calling for a redesigning of the tables where decisions are made so that women leaders themselves, those that are driving the peace-building initiatives at at local and country level are also being heard in these formal spaces. Mm. There's an emphasis on having young women involved in this network. So what do you think are some of the issues that young Pacific women face that this network will address? So one one of the things that we've actually been talking about is even challenging ourselves to 
to think about how do we actually define young women. Um, so we really have to look at, you know, um, being very clear that we're talking about an age group that's between 18 and up to 40 years. That's a negotiation in itself because in many different cultural contexts as well, you can always remain a younger woman in the eyes of your mother or your grandmother, right? Um, so so we, we are definitely committed to ensuring that as we talk about the sustainability of our work and succession planning, that we are talking about young women who will... Um, who will take on the leadership over the next three years as well. That's a really important commitment. The way in which the training will need to um, be designed should will also need to take into account certainly the 15 young women who um, come into the more formal part of the program and have the scholarship. But we also want to ensure, and this is a clear message from the technical working group, that these training programs, these training modules must also then be um, translated and made available so that through our networks um, across the Pacific, more young women, particularly in maritime remote, the out-of-school girls also have access to this information to help them learn, to help them build their leadership skills as well. So it's something that I feel we're starting but we will certainly be continuing to learn from and to think about the diversity of young women who need to be taken into account as we develop the programs for them, um, as well as having that outreach through young women-led networks um, to, to be able to make that connect with young women in their own island communities. That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so passoi for. Sweet. Okay. Oh, shit.